Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 20, are all men then saved by Christ just as they perish through Adam? And our response is no. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Question 21, what is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. Question 22, what then must a Christian believe? Our answer, all that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. And question 23 is, what are these articles? And our answer is the Apostles' Creed, as we will confess later on in this worship service. So far, the reading from the Confession. May God bless these readings as well as the proclamation of his word based upon the teachings of Scripture. Following the sermon in response to it, we'll sing Psalm 40, the stanzas 4 and 5. Beloved congregation, our Lord Jesus Christ, we live in what is called a tolerant age. And in this tolerant age, we find ourselves as Christians in the place of the worst kind of offender in the minds of many. And that's because the Christian faith is, by its very nature, an exclusive faith. Now, it's interesting that people who claim not to believe in heaven or hell, in eternal blessing or eternal punishment, can become highly offended when the exclusive message of Christianity is proclaimed. Now, it doesn't seem to make, on the surface, it doesn't seem to make much sense. If you don't believe that God exists anyway, let alone in heaven or in hell, why would you have a problem with those who do? But in a society like ours, a a nation that prides itself on being pluralistic, on being multicultural, there are few more offensive things that you could say than that your way is the right way and that every other way is wrong. Brothers and sisters, we proclaim a message that makes very strong claims for itself. We proclaim what we describe as the truth. The message that you hear preached every Sunday, the message that's proclaimed from the pulpit, the message that's taught in catechism classes, the message that's taught in Bible studies and spoken about in Bible studies, that's, that's brought into our homes in visitation, that's used in our evangelism. That message is not just my personal truth, neither is it the personal truth of any one of you. And I'm sure you've heard it being said very many times. It's a way of speaking that's become especially popular over the past few years. People encourage others to speak their truth. 
They make declarations like, I have to speak my truth. As if my truth could possibly be different from your truth or anybody else's truth. As if the concept of truth is so flexible, so malleable, that each one of us can have our own personal truth. And that that personal truth that we have may be completely different from, may even be contradictory to, somebody else's personal truth. But we are called not to speak my truth. We are called to speak the truth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Now often, today, the emphasis is put on the in love part of that phrase, rather than on the speaking the truth part of the phrase. And because of the way that our culture misdefines so often and misunderstands what real true love is, it's the truth that most often suffers. Even among us as Christians, because our culture often has more of an influence on us than we often think. We don't often stop to consider how much our culture influences us and our thinking. So we speak about the truth and speaking the truth. But what is the truth? An important part of that truth, that truth that we confess in Lord's Day 7 of our Heidelberg Catechism, is that not all people will be saved. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all His benefits. And so the message is very exclusive in that sense. There are those who we could say are on the outside, but those are, there are also those, we could say, who are on the inside. There's a division of this world, a division that exists and will exist until Christ returns, and that division is very real. Nothing we do or say to minimize that division or to brush it aside will make the reality of that division any less true. Now, if we were here simply making stuff up, if we had, had just come up with or developed our own peculiar philosophy, our own individual, unique way of thinking about things, and then try to convince everyone else in the world to accept it and then tell them that they're going to hell if they don't accept it, then you might be able to see the point of people who hate the exclusivism, the exclusivity of Christianity. But brothers and sisters, here's the important thing. It's not our personal message at all. It's the message of God's Word. And God's Word is perfect. Just three examples. John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then Acts 4, verse 12. 
And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the fact of the matter, as we confess in our catechism, not everyone will be saved. There are not many different roads to salvation. There are not many supposedly uh, different truths out there so that we can just go out and choose the one that seems suitable to us. That we can just go out and choose the truth that we find personally to be the most appealing. Truth simply is not something that's relative It's not something that can be different for people of different cultures or different ethnic groups or different religious backgrounds. There is one way to the Father, not many ways. There is only one way to have a living relationship with God. And that way is the way of Jesus Christ who said, I am the way. So there is only one truth. There's not many truths. That truth is embodied in the person of the one who said, I am the truth. And that's Jesus Christ. And there's only one source of life. There's not many different sources of life as if you can go to one spring of water or another to get to find the the source of, of water that's good. No, there's only one source and that source is Jesus Christ who said, I am the life. A religious pluralist would have us believe that Buddhists are saved by being faithful Buddhists. Hindus are saved by being faithful Hindus. Muslims are saved by being faithful Muslims. Sikhs are saved by being faithful Sikhs. And Christians are saved by being faithful Christians. And while that version of religious pluralism is very much acceptable to Buddhists, and Hindus, and Sikhs, and pagans, and Wiccans. It completely contradicts what the Lord Jesus Christ said about himself, what he declared about himself, and what, also what his followers declared about him. The very first proclamation of the gospel that we know of after the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ Put that truth front and center. There is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. Now that's the truth that we confess. And it's a truth that's becoming more and more difficult to confess openly as repressive tolerance brands any kind of exclusive claim as being unacceptable. Try making this claim in one of your university classes or making this claim anywhere in the public square and you'll quickly experience what this so-called tolerance actually looks like in reality. But this is nothing new. Historically speaking, there's nothing new under the sun. We know that Solomon said that and in this case, it's nothing new as well. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ was first proclaimed in a culture, in a society that really wasn't a whole lot different than ours is today, to what ours has become. In the Roman Empire at the time of Christ and and the ministry of his first apostles, there was great religious freedom. There was great religious freedom as long as your religious beliefs didn't infringe on anyone else's, didn't step on anybody else's toes. And especially as long as your religious beliefs that you proclaimed and that you lived did not conflict with the state religion, the official religion of the empire, which demanded complete allegiance and absolute allegiance to the divine emperor. Now in that context, in the context of the Roman Empire, in the context of the early church, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ could lead to much suffering and could lead, in fact, to death and often did. And our calling as a church, our calling as individual Christians, and our calling as the body of Christ united is to live and to speak and proclaim in the same way that our forefathers in the faith did, with boldness, with confidence, and speaking the truth in love. But what exactly is the message that we proclaim? We proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. We proclaim that He is the great King over all things. We proclaim that He demands and that He deserves our complete allegiance and our complete submission. We proclaim a message that says in order to be made right with God, you need to be united with Him. We proclaim the message that says that He offered Himself as the perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice that was made necessary because of our sin. God is holy. That's the message that we proclaim He hates sin, and He punishes sin in His perfect justice, in His righteousness. And so in order for us to live, in order for us to experience the abundant life that Jesus spoke about, that life here and now, in order to experience also that abundant life for all of eternity, His righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, must become our righteousness. Now Jesus said he is the way. But how can we be a part of that? What is the way of salvation? How can we be united to Christ? How can we be grafted into the vine as the apostle Paul says in his letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 11? Jesus Christ is the vine. We are the branches. We are grafted into him. Could that that way of salvation, could it be the way of of perfect obedience? Could it be through the way of of doing your best, of being the best person that you can possibly be, of, of earning God's favor in whatever way that you possibly can in this life? Absolutely not. That's not the way. That's actually the false way of salvation that's offered by all of the world's religions. It's the false way of salvation that's even offered by the humanists 
who claim not to believe in God and who claim not to believe in heaven or in hell or eternal punishment and eternal reward. Those who believe that salvation is something that can only be found in this life, in this world. It's a false way of salvation. Wherever it comes from, whatever spin is put on it, because it doesn't take into account the central truth, the central truth about humanity, about who we are. That we are so badly stained by sin that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to appease a perfect, holy God. We need Christ. We desperately need Christ. And the way to have Christ is the way of faith. But what is that faith exactly? Faith, I think we all know this, faith can be kind of a nebulous concept. It can be kind of foggy. You can have faith in a lot of things. That faith can take many different forms. We've all heard messages about certain kinds of faith or certain definitions of faith. People say, you just have to believe in yourself. Or they say, you just have to believe in something. And even within the church, people may have mistaken understandings of what faith really is. They may may imagine that faith is agreeing with certain doctrines, assenting to the truths of God or the truth of God's Word. I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Or, I believe in God. Or, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Those kinds of declarations, which many people make the equivalent of faith, are all very impersonal. They're all declarations that speak about something that's, that's outside of ourselves in a way. They are declarations, but they don't really get to the heart of the matter or to our heart. But what is this faith, this faith that is so essential because it unites us to Christ, who is the only way of salvation? Well, in our catechism, we confess that it has a couple of different aspects. First of all, it's a sure knowledge. And secondly, it's a firm confidence. And thirdly, it's worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now, the first part of our catechism's definition of truth focuses on, of true faith, rather, focuses on the truth of God's Word and the necessity to believe it. And the second part is personal. It goes beyond knowledge. It goes beyond assent. It gets to the heart of the matter. True faith means that God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation to me and not only to others. It means knowing in a very personal way the grace of God. It means understanding that I haven't earned a single thing from God. It's impossible. But that He saved me for Christ's sake. 
It means giving up on any attempt of earning salvation for ourselves. And the third part of our catechism's definition of true faith shows us where that faith comes from. What's the source? It's not something that we work up within ourselves. It's not the result of of self-denial. And it's not some kind of vague hope against hope that we have to develop and that we have to fan, fan into flames within ourselves in some way. It's a result of the work of God Himself within us through the Gospel. So we can already see, brothers and sisters, in our catechism that true faith is something much more than just assent to certain truths. And that's what we also heard in our Scripture reading from the letter of James. James makes it very clear that faith is not just a matter of, of saying or knowing or having the right ideas about God. It's not even about having the right ideas about central teachings about God and who God is. And he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. So here he's referring to one of the central, one of the most important verses in the Old Testament for his Jewish readers. He's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and that verse is known as the Shema, from the first word in the Hebrew. And that was like the foundational confession. It's like the constitutional statement for the people of Israel, for God's people in the Old Covenant. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So James says to his readers, and he says to us, well, it's good that you believe that. But there's a whole lot more to true faith than believing that God is one or making the declaration of of Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Because James says very strongly, even the demons believe that. And no one could be farther from God. No one could be more separated from Him. Nobody could be more hostile to Him, antagonistic towards Him and His people, at war with Him, than the demons. They believe that God is one too. Because they know. They know that God is one. They know there is only one true God. But they don't have faith in any sense of the word. They believe, and that belief leads them to shudder, to shudder in fear. Because faith, brothers and sisters, can never be divorced, it can never be separated from the fruits of faith. Faith, that does not bear fruit. This is the message of James. Faith that does not bear fruit is not and cannot be called true faith. It may have some super, superficial resemblance to true faith, but it's not real. Because as James says, and he says it very clearly, he says, faith apart from works is useless. And that means that if you claim to have faith, but if your life doesn't show any meaningful results, doesn't show any evidence of the faith that you proclaim to have, then that claim is actually meaningless. Because true faith 
has at its center unity with Christ. True faith unites us to Christ. As we already heard, He is the vine. We are the branches that are grafted into the vine. And so just like the branches that are grafted into a, a real physical vine, we receive from the vine everything that we need. We receive the nutrients, we receive the water, we receive the sources of life from the vine. And so if the branch that's grafted onto the vine is bearing fruit, if it's producing like it's meant to produce, then you can see that 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 branch is healthy. You can see that the connection with the vine, that graft, is solid and that it's doing what it's supposed to do. But if the branch isn't bearing fruit, then that connection must not be there or it must be a very weak connection indeed. And so, if that connection between the branch and the vine, if that connection is weak, then there's not going to be a, in the words of our catechism, a sure knowledge. There will be all kinds of doubts about the truth of what God has revealed to us in His Word. And there certainly won't be a firm confidence. There won't be an unwavering, unshakable certainty that God has granted to you forgiveness of sins and everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace only for the sake of Christ's merits. In the words of Lord's Day 32 of our catechism, a lack of evidence of genuine faith in your life, a lack of the fruit of what our catechism calls good works, it asks, why must we do good works? That lack of of fruit, that lack of good works as fruit of faith will have negative results. Negative results not just for us personally, but also for our witness to the world. Because those good works, the fruit of faith, they accomplish two things. They first of all give us assurance of faith, and they also serve to win our neighbors for Christ. So if you're struggling, if you think about your own life and the fruit that you are bearing or the fruit that you're not bearing, the lack of fruit perhaps in your life, what can you do? Now this is where we need to focus specifically on the object of our faith. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ. But how can our faith in Jesus Christ be strengthened? How can that connection between us as the branches and Him as the vine be made stronger? Well, first of all, in order to know Christ, we need to go to the place where He has revealed Himself. We need to go to His Word. In theological terms, we speak about the means of grace. And the means of grace are the preaching of the Gospel and the sacraments. These are the means that God uses to work faith in our hearts in the first place and then to strengthen that faith as we go through life. In His grace, He's revealed in His Word. He's revealed everything about Himself. He's revealed everything about His will, everything that we need to know. 
how he has related to his people since the very beginning. It is grace. He's revealed, most importantly, the Word made flesh, his Son. And on the pages of God's Word, that's where we meet him, where we meet the Savior. So if faith means trusting in Christ, it means that we need to know Him because you only trust someone that you know. You don't trust a stranger. You don't trust someone who's unfamiliar to you. A child trusts his parents because he is intimately familiar with his parents. He has confidence in them because he knows them and he has experience with them. But if a young child doesn't know someone, He's not going to have that same attitude of trust and of confidence. And so in the Word, we encounter Christ. But being in God's Word isn't just about learning more and more about Christ and who He is, although that's very important. It's also, the Word is also the means that God uses working through the Holy Spirit to work faith in us and to strengthen our faith. And so if you're not spending time in God's Word, if you're not making use of the preaching, sitting under the preaching of the Gospel, receiving the the preaching of the Gospel as God's life-giving Word, then you can't expect your faith to be strong. Then there's there's also the other means of grace, the sacraments. God uses these sacraments. He works through them. He works with them through His Holy Spirit to strengthen our faith. And so the two go hand in hand, the Word and the sacraments. And we can trust that God, in His grace, will do what He promised to do. He will use these means to strengthen us when we find ourselves faltering. And that means that when we find ourselves faltering, brothers and sisters, the last thing that we should do is avoid the worship services and stay away from the Lord's Supper. That's the first thing that we need to be doing. Our life of faith may have its ups and downs, will have its ups and downs. This life is a constant battle. It's a a constant battle against the sinful forces that are at work in this world, against the evil one, the enemy of God and the enemy of His people, and centrally, every moment of this life against our own sinful nature which is within us. But if we maintain our grip on the lifeline that links us to Christ, we can be sure that in all of our trials, in all of the tough times, in all of the struggles, in all of the difficulties, He will be with us. We can have that sure knowledge. We can have that firm confidence. And we can have that firm confidence because First and foremost, and most importantly, it's not a firm confidence in ourselves. We are very weak. We stumble and fall. We're tempted. And in ourselves, we don't have the strength. We don't even have the willingness within ourselves to stand firm in the face of those temptations. But it is the object of our faith that matters. That object is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has proven Himself to be perfectly faithful. And He will never turn us away when we seek Him humbly. 
He suffered, he gave his life so that we may have life and we may have, as he said, life in abundance. He rose and he ascended into heaven so that he could send the comforter, the advocate, the Holy Spirit to be with us forever. Now that is the message of the gospel. That is the message that we here once again are called to accept and to believe. It's a message that God's enemies hate because it's an exclusive message. It says that salvation could only be found in Jesus Christ. But it's a message that's also supremely inclusive because no one who comes to Christ in faith will ever be turned away. There is no distinction. God's Word makes it very clear. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. And then Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so the invitation is a very inclusive one. It's open to all. And that invitation comes for and forms some of the final words in all of Scripture. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Brothers and sisters, may that message live within us. May it be the source of all of our joy. And may may it lead each and every one of us to go forth and bear much fruit. And that will reveal the genuineness of our faith. Amen.